This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, a show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Each week, this podcast is created by humans with the help of some expensive hardware and a handful of apps. But will future series be made entirely by algorithm? After all, from driving cars to writing legal contracts, new developments in AI are shaking up the status quo. And many of the tasks once exclusive to humans can be done just as well, if not better, by machines. Is it only a matter of time then before they learn to be creative? On this week's episode, the documentary maker David Malone meets Oxford mathematician Marcus de Sotoy, whose new book, The Creativity Code, asks what it will mean to be human when an algorithm can paint like Rembrandt, compose like Mozart, and write like Shakespeare. Marcus, thanks very much for coming to talk to us about your new book. The Creativity Code, AI Learns to Write, Paint and Think. One of the things I loved about the book is right from the very first two words, you've got this tension that runs all the way through the book, haven't you? which worries you a lot, a lot quite personally as well. It worries me personally because I believe my own subject of mathematics is a highly creative one. And I think a lot of people thought math surely is going to be one of the first subjects that AI and computers uh, and code can do because isn't that all maths anyway? So so I've always kind of held on to the idea that no, it can't do it because maths is a very creative subject. And I think, you know, in this age when so many things seem to be able to be done by machines, AI, you know, they're driving our cars, they're going to be our doctors, our lawyers. We're looking for that thing which surely they can't do this. And I think human creativity is one of those things which we really, and the creative arts, that is an expression of what it means to be human. And so this is a book about, well, maybe even that um, is something that AI, especially in this kind of new age of AI, might be able to get somewhere close to. Yeah, I mean, so there's two words, creativity code. You're sort of saying, can you capture in computer code whatever the creativity is? Or could you write an app for inspired originality? You know, put it on your phone and then your phone will chirp with a new piece of inspired original thinking every few seconds. Yes, exactly. So it, it sounds just so so farcical an idea. Yet when you actually start to analyse, well, what are we doing as humans um, in our acts of creativity? Well, the point is that we kind of think it's something mysterious because we often can't articulate what is going on. But fundamentally, the brain is something which is going through an algorithmic process, feeding on data that we're exposed to through our lives. It's, it's processing that data. And then, so it is an algorithmic process, but it's deeply mysterious and one we can't articulate because it's so complex. And actually, our art is the sort of projection of that huge complexity onto maybe a two-dimensional canvas or onto a piece of music or a novel. So I, 
there's this constant tension throughout the book, which is that, yes, creativity is something that's very hard to articulate and write code for because, in, and this is the point, code in the past, you had to understand how this thing worked in order to write down the rules that would then produce more of it. And since we don't understand our own creativity, that was impossible. You couldn't code up creativity. But there's been a real sea change. And this is why I've written this book now, because Coding has changed. There's been a phase change. Um, code in the past was very top down. The coder would be totally in control, sort of know what it was going to do. Now code is re- being written in a very sort of bottom up manner. The code is allowed to mutate, change, evolve, reparameterize itself as it encounters more data, gets things wrong, uh, learns new things. And, and this is the real change. I sometimes compare it a little bit like the codes that we create for children. You know, DNA is a combination of the code of the parent and birth in some sense that is still a product of the parent. But then the child is exposed to its environment. It gets new data coming in and then it becomes an independent adult. I think code in the past never had that environment to learn on, but now we have a very digitally rich uh, world for the code to kind of learn, change, fail, fall over, pick themselves up. And I think we are seeing the code start to disconnect from the coder, which is really, I think, what you're after. You, If there's artistic creative output, often people will say, well, surely that's still the creative output of the original person who wrote the code. Code deserves to be called, in some sense, part of that artistic process rather than just simply the coder. And I think we are beginning to see that because of this thing called machine learning, which is a sort of coding which is changing as it engages with its digital environment. Hearing you speak like that, it seems you give the impression that you've decided that it's, yes, it's all algorithmic. But in the book, you, you one moment you're sort of coming down on that side and then you go, oh, no, maybe not. So I, I don't, I, well, I think the point is that what is emerging now is in the code, the code is starting to behave very much like the mystery of, uh, of human creativity, which is actually, once the thing has changed and evolved so much, the code is actually as mysterious as our own process. So weirdly, um, uh, it's still ag- algorithmic, but an algorithmic in the sense that the brain is algorithmic. And we actually don't know quite why it's making its decisions. And I think this is really important for society today because so many uh, algorithms are pushing and pulling us around yet actually because they have changed so much we actually don't necessarily know how how and why they're making the decisions they are so when it turns you down for a mortgage it's unable to articulate that and looking under the bonnet it's hard to see the what the code is doing and actually one of the interesting things that came out of the book is that the role of art one of the roles of art for us as humans is for us to get in the mind of other human beings, which are often a mystery, and it's kind of the hard problem of consciousness. I I know what pain feels like for me, but is pain something similar for you? The way you will write music and the way that you will write a novel might give us a, a way of comparing our pain. Now, I think that the art, which I explore in the book that AI is producing, might well actually be a very good kind of way of understanding how the AI is making its decisions. Um, McLuhan always said, you know, art is an early warning, distant early warning system. And I think that the art that AI is producing is might help us to kind of understand how the AI is, let's say, thinking. Hmm. 
really early on in the book, you, you tell me, it's, it was useful for me, you say, okay, we've got this word creativity, it fools us into thinking that it's one thing, but actually it's not. And you rather usefully sort of break it down to the different kinds of creativity. Yes. I, I think, you know, creativity is one of those words, a bit like consciousness, where uh, we, we sort of don't quite know what we mean by it. So I actually, first of all, took a definition of creativity, which I learned from Margaret Bowden, who I was on a committee looking at the impact of all this technology on society. And she has a good definition, which is that it should be something novel, surprising, and have value, which I think is a good working definition of creativity. Um, of course, surprise and value are very subjective. So new, you can probably judge quite cleanly. Um, but then uh, I then explain a very nice categorization that she has of creativity into three different sorts of creativity. Um, the first is exploratory creativity, which is kind of pushing the rules of the game to the extreme. And I think, of course, a computer is going to be very good at that because our hardware, our brains kind of give out after a while, but it can go deeper into exploring a chess, for example, that's a good example of, um, you know, it can go far deeper into the game and think logically. Um, so it can do exploratory creativity within the rules of that game. Then there's combinational creativity. And this is one that I use a lot in my own mathematical work, which is, you know, taking some ideas from a completely different discipline and using that way of thinking in the, the area that you're interested in. And I, I think that's sort of fusion, I mean, fusion cooking, is quite a nice example of that, you know. So I'm going to take the ingredients from one area of the world, but use the style of cooking from another. Um, and that's interesting because I think machine learning uh, can do that. It can learn style, and then it can apply that style to something else. So there's an interesting example of the book in the book by um, Francois Pache, um, who creates something called the flow machine. So he's interested in, especially in music, um, but this flow machine, which is actually after that idea of artists getting in flow, the idea of being um, somehow losing any concept of time because, you know, your expertise is high and your achievement is high. And so he wanted to create, you know, could you create something which could capture that feeling of creativity? Um, and he, But it's really modelled on the idea of combinational creativity. Um, then the really challenging one is the transformational creativity. And these are the moments, uh, you know, like, these are the phase changes where something completely new appears on the scene. But of course, it never is completely something from nothing. You know, actually, you think about creativity uh, in a kind of religious sense, it's meant to be how you get something out of nothing. But creativity in a human sense is often got uh, something it's appeared from. And there may be a huge phase change, but, you know, even with water, if I stick a um, heat underneath it, that constant heat, there's something strange happens at 100 degrees Celsius and suddenly the water changes into something else. So I think that's a challenge for AI. Can it, isn't AI stuck inside a system, stuck inside a set of rules? How can it break those rules? But I think do, you think, what, do you think it is? Do you think it can? Well, I think it can because what, what we're doing is writing, uh, we're getting very good at writing kind of meta code. Um, code which can tell uh, sort of code what to do. And so you can write a rule for trans. And I do this with my PhD students. I say, well, break some rules, you know, see what happens if you break this particular rule. Does it, the whole system collapse or does something new emerge if you put a new rule in there? Okay. I mean, the, the exploratory, that's, as you say, that's just, I've, I've got two plus two is four. So I go, oh, well, if that's the case, then four plus four must be eight. And you can keep on going. You're just sort of yeah, or, turning the handle on the rules. and Or something like the music, you see, if you're in a particular style. I would say Bach um, took 
his particular period of music to an absolute extreme uh, of creativity and really push those rules to, to create an extra. But then they broke and you go into then the period of Mozart and Beethoven because he almost reached the, the, the pinnacle of that kind of Baroque period and you get something different. So. And then in the combinatorial, then it's, it's, it's a bit like it made me think of metaphor. In other words, you, you, you're taking something from one you know, one sort of relationship and saying, it's like that. Yes. But my question, which I still had after reading the book, is I got the impression that it was still the programmer who was saying, who was instructing the computer to say, combine the structures of Bach, but with the the notation of jazz. Or or have I missed something? Is no, the computer doing that? No, I think you're absolutely right. That at the moment, it's um, what we are getting is a collaboration a collaboration between, and you know, I think what you've really touched on, which is fundamental here, is intent. Where is the intent coming from? That's really important. The AI doesn't have any desire to express itself. I mean, you can put that in. That's the interesting thing. But it's still that is that intent is coming from the coder or the the desire to take risk. Um, you know, a lot of the interesting stuff coming out of DeepMind is incentivizing risk taking within a game to to learn something new about a game. Um, so I think. Uh, but what's the power of the AI is to pick up what's kind of fundamental to a particular style. And so I think that that's the interesting thing, getting the code kind of learn style. And often what's exciting is to identify things that we are missing in that style. And I think that's that's kind of exciting when and I think that's the point of AI for us at the moment. In at the moment, yes. I mean, it's, it's very good at seeing patterns which we can't see. Yeah. And you go, oh, my goodness, that, that pattern has been there all along. I never, I yes. never saw it. One interesting case is the Netflix algorithm for recommending you films. Um, that it, it took just basically the likes and dislikes of people, didn't really know what the films are about or anything, just had a number for the film. And, you know, uh, this person liked it, this gave it two stars. It was able to put films into categories. Some of the times we would recognise, yeah, those are all comedies. I see why it's clumped those. But there were some really interesting times when it clumped films together and there was no clear name for the genre that it had identified. But because what um, mathematics is very good at is living in a very high dimensional uh, space. So you would plot all these films and the likes in a very high dimensional space and then you want to sort of project it into something that we can navigate. Yes, um, you had the nice uh, the, uh, nice metaphor of you, you cast a two-dimensional shadow. Yes. And that, yeah, uh, then I could understand it. Yes, <laughs> and so that's, but it can find really interesting shadows. So, you know, some shadows don't reveal anything about a face, but, you know, something in profile, suddenly you know exactly who that is. So so the, the exciting thing is that AI is, is exploring this high-dimensional space and finding interesting projections, which are telling us new things about um, genres of the, films, art, music. That's a kind of creativity, but it's not the same as the creative input which the, the programmer still seems to have, which is to say Beethoven and jazz is going to be a good combination. That, that bit of the creativity still seems to be coming from the human. Yes, I mean, that, but I think there are a good, a good examples where the creativity is really being generated. So I think that's absolutely an example where, you know, the, the intention is to mix those things. But again, um, it, the AI may be able to spot um, uh, the sort of structures which have a good fusion to them. So um, I, I think that... Can it? Can they do that, do you think? Yes, and I would say, you know, in, in some ways, 
I mean, let's take a different example, um, which is kind of a similar idea, but of translation. Um, so, you know, we have amazing algorithms to translate. And what they're doing is not just translating word by word, but they're understanding the structure of language. But um, the AI has identified, for example, that languages often have very similar kind of high dimensional shapes. And you can then just you can teach it how to translate from Spanish to English, English to Portuguese, but actually it can translate straight from Spanish to Portuguese because it sees the similar structure and it, and it sort of um, matches that. But, and that is a kind of um, something that the AI has discovered. Yes, but then you come on to... The I can see you're so desperate to have the human in here. Still. No, 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 I, mean, no, I, really, <laughs> I really like it. Yeah. But, but, but what I picked up on is... Just as I was thinking, okay, all right, I'm convinced. And then three pages later, you throw something in, you go, oh, oh, so it's not like at all. So I was sort of back with... I so, think there so are many different, many different games going on here. That's what's so exciting. So um, some of them uh, will have, uh, you know, be led by humans. But I think one of the most interesting examples that I explored with this idea of adversarial networks, where you get two algorithms kind of creatively working with or against each other, a bit like a game. And some of the most interesting visual art I've seen has appeared out of the idea one algorithm learns styles of the past and is incentivized to try and break something out of that style, but still has to stay within the world of art. The second algorithm is the discriminator algorithm and says, look, I still recognize that style. You still haven't broken far enough. That's still pointillism or, or no, that's just not art. That's a splurge. And so there are some interesting examples um, which have come out of that, which were displayed in Basel uh, Art Fair. Nobody knew that they were created by these adversarial networks and people were having a you know really interesting uh, response to those. And again, you see there's um, something new appearing, but it was, it's all come out of learning on, on the art of the past, which is, of course, any creative is doing that will recognize that even if it is Picasso who's having a complete phase change happening that's all traceable to learning the rules and breaking them yeah they're still reacting against something but then you then you throw in just when you think that it's safe to go back in the water then you throw in this the the infinite library which I, I love but it was quite a profound bit of the book because yeah you know you, you make the point that okay here's this library it's got all it's 26 letters or whatever it is and all conceivable combinations yeah, this is oh. Borges' Library of Babel. And what's is, lovely yeah. about it is if it's got every conceivable combination, one of them will be um, War and Peace. And one of them's my book. Just only I found it. <laughs> but, but those things, although they'll be there, will be lost yeah. with an infinity of gibberish. Yes. Yeah, so now, how can we don't get lost? The, the chances of us ever writing... Um, War and peace are zero if we're just randomly putting things together. But we seem to infallibly create war and peace and Shakespeare and Milton and Maya Angelou. We don't get stuck as we ought to in an infinite sea of gibberish. Can the computers do that? And if so, yes, so I think you see that in the past one felt that well, a computer can churn out tons of stuff, but most of it's rubbish. And I, that's why I use this story because I think it's a great um, kind of. A bit of grit to, to, to work on. And, you know, so my library in Oxford, the, the Bodleian, lots of choices are being made. Uh, you know, that library of Babel contains everything, yet it actually contains nothing because nobody's made any choices. I, I think that this is what has changed with the code that we're creating because the code can learn to make those discerning choices because it can learn on the sort of things that, that we have appreciated up to now. 
and it can learn what we value. And therefore, it although it will can churn out a lot, it can make that. Um, and that's what I think the adversarial network is is absolutely capturing that idea of one algorithm creating a lot, but the other algorithm saying no, that's all rubbish. No, that's very derivative. And I think that's what's exciting that you've now got an algorithm which is making choices. Those choices are based on learning uh, things of the past and. Uh, you know, maybe we're getting more of the same, um, which is, you know, I think a lot of human creativity is just more of the same. Um, but what's exciting is that quite often it's saying, I, I understand your world, but within your world, you can still do this. I think one of the most exciting stories is the jazz improviser, the jazz continuator that um, learned off the jazz riffs of a, a pianist. Pianist, when he played with this algorithm, said, I recognize that world. It's my world. It's But it's showing me things I could never have thought of doing. And I think that's the exciting thing. We as humans get stuck in ways of thinking. We behave very much like machines after a while. I think the AI might be able to, to kick us out of that and show us new things to do within the world. But it's learning sort of of our world and, and not just producing the, the Library of Babel. Mm. Which then brings us to something that you, it sort of comes in teasingly towards the end of the book because you, you, you ask, well, how is the machine going to be motivated to yes. say this is good and that's rubbish? Now we do it because we live in a world, and and you know, it's a, 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 trying to go through a door. The good way is to open it. The bad way is to plow your way through it. And we learn that really easily. So we, we all doors we now open. Nobody charges through them. Do AIs need to be embodied? I mean, if they just exist as a little grey box, will they ever? No. I think it's important good. that we don't just try and create. I think this is um, the trouble with AI is that, you know, Turing's challenge right at the beginning was to try and understand the way humans think. And so we would try and make AI which would do things humans could do because that would help us. And that's a, you know, a worthy sort of goal. But I think that we should redefine. It's not artificial intelligence. It should be augmented intelligence. So forget about the door. We know how to get through doors, but it does live in a world. It lives in a very different world and a world that is becoming more and more part of our world, which is the digital world. And so we have a lot of difficulty navigating our way through doors in the digital world. It is able to understand much more. It is kind of got a better, it's better embodied in the digital world than we are in a way. So I think what you want to do is, and I think that's the point, this is why there's something very exciting happening at the moment, because absolutely said, code in the past didn't have that digital embodiment because there wasn't a digital landscape to live in. I think we're now at an exciting time where we can get AI being a different sort of intelligence. And, and that is what's exciting, I think. Who's going to adapt to who then? Yeah, very. Uh, this is really important. Um, and I wanted this to be a, actually a very positive book because there's so many dystopian, you know, oh, there's not going to be any adapting. They're just going to rule the world and, and we're going to be in zoos, which they'll come and visit and say, oh, look, we evolved from that thing there. Um, uh, and I think that uh, it's really important that this be a collaboration uh, and that we use these tools. You know, I think, as I said, the AI Art is a way of helping us to understand the way AI is thinking. But our art is also, I think, a way for AI to understand how we think. And I think ultimately 
to avoid all of this dystopian futures, we want an empathetic AI. We want AI to be on our side. Well, it's going to have to have a body if it's going to be empathetic. I don't agree with you. Don't you? No, right. because well, there are very interesting examples already where, um, you know, one of the big great breakthroughs in AI is um, visual recognition software. We now have already seen AI able to read emotions in a face much better than humans can. I had a woman from MIT come over and give a lecture to, for us in Oxford. And she has software which can pick out a false smile. So although somebody's smiling, humans get taken in by it, but the AI is picking up key things which are saying, this person actually isn't happy. That's not empathy though. That, uh, uh, well, uh, I it's a, certainly a form of empathy. No, it's a it, sort it, of empathy it, which um, uh, uh, autistic kids have a lot of problems with, reading what's going on inside uh, the head of another. And, you know, this is being used now. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I think you're right that they can read our emotions. Yes. But you mean if, have someone, someone can, if, if someone can read your emotion but have no emotions themselves, that's the definition of a psychopath. <laughs> but what you've just described <laughs> is an AI psychopath. And empathy is to care about the other person. Yes, but I think the first... Uh, Not uh, read them. But I think the first thing on the way to um, ha having empathy is, is, first of all, reading. Yeah, but um, if you stop there, we're in trouble. Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> so that's how right. do you get them to care is my point. Reading them, they can be psychopaths. To care, do they need a body? Do they need to know what pain I, I is? I don't necessarily think they need a body. I think that they probably need consciousness. And this is... Oh, is that all? Uh, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So, so I think this is the exciting thing because I do think that um, uh, AI will achieve consciousness. Oh, fantastic. Because, you know, I, I, there's nothing mysterious about, uh, you know, you put some atoms together and then suddenly consciousness occurs. Of course, that's mysterious and we don't understand it. <laughs> but, but I don't think, my point is, I don't think that there's an, um, a secret ingredient that we haven't discovered yet or some force that, uh, uh, or something that can only, you know, solve. I think that AI will be able to achieve a network which has a sense of self. Um, but of course, we're never going to know that. And your, your idea of empathy, you know, actually, can you do any more than, than read what the emotional state is? You don't know what's going on inside. You make an assumption because your internal world is, you assume this no, idea I don't, of I do more than that. I can feel, if I care about someone and they're in pain, I, I almost feel that pain. You must have felt that with your children. You don't just look at them and go, he's in pain. <laughs> well, my wife would say, actually, empathy is something more than that, isn't it? Well, but I think you really have to push yourself and say, but is it? What am I doing here? What, uh, you know, I am reading signals here which are triggering things in myself. Um, which, but that's the key. It's triggering something that is in you. It's triggering something. Yes. So we have to have AIs that have something in so, them to so be my triggered. Cha my challenge is, um, you know, when, if AI does become conscious and it's doing all the things which are triggering you to think that thing is in pain. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, no, because it's just a machine. It can't be. There's, there's going to be a moment when you're, you're going to be really challenged with, um, and, you know, actually, I, I end, you know, pain is something that Wittgenstein talks a lot about and the trouble of us really sharing that word. I can't, I can point at a glass and say that's a glass and that will help you to learn what I mean by glass and we can share those word games. It's really difficult to do that with pain. And the only thing you do is empathy. You, you just associate your pain. But how do you know my pain is anything like yours? You, you, can't. you can't. No, I can't. No. And But our art is our best way of, I think, it's the best fMRI scanner for understanding things like um, that internal world of pain. And that's why I think that, uh, you know, very deep in the future, but if and when AI does become conscious, I think that the art is going to produce 
it will produce will be its way to understand what its consciousness is like. And the trouble is, its consciousness is going to be very different from ours. Just in the same, you know, Wittgenstein says, you know, if a lion could speak, we wouldn't be able to understand him. I think that's the point that we're going to have to find our, these kind of tools and language to be able to, to share our internal worlds, which are going to be very different. A computer's pain is going to be very different from ours. Well, I'm personally really looking forward to having a chat to one of these AIs. Uh, me too. I mean, and that's right. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really exciting future. Brilliant. Thanks so much for coming to chat to us. Yeah, really interesting. This week's podcast starred Professor Marcus de Sotoy and David Malone. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. Visit us at howtoacademy.com for podcasts and films starring the world's leading thinkers and the world's thinking leaders, from Yuval Noah Harari to Melinda Gates. And visit us live in London for an all-year-round programme of festivals, conferences, talks and debates. Thanks for listening.